Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Donald Brackett, who joined me to discuss his book, Yoko Ono, An Artful Life. Yoko is this figure that arrives in other Beatles books fully formed, and as we know, is taken dramatically into the Beatle world via her relationship with John. Donald's book provides some much-needed backstory and provides context for her life before she stumbled across John in the Indica Gallery. The book charts her journey of personal turmoil, artistic evolution and activism, and at last tells her story before, during and after John Lennon. Donna Brackett, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Very well, Joe. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We're here to talk about your book, Yoko Ono, An Artful Life. Really, really interesting read. Lots about a really big figure in the Beatles world that I didn't know. So an, a, a nice and obvious first question, what was the inspiration for yourself to tell Yoko's story? Uh, inspiration behind telling the story. Well, I have to say that Yoko herself is really the inspiration for my desire to tell her story and her inspiring work in the art world, which I'm quite familiar with, as well as you know her being a poet, performance artist, social activist, and yes, experimental museum, musician, uh, multiple fields of expression she has, both the avant-garde and what I call the hybrid pop zones. So to some degree, I'm also inspired to tell her story uh, simply because so few people actually do know her story, especially the parts of her history before meeting a certain pop star. You know, that too is my motivation since I love the Beatles. So I also felt it's natural from my perspective to not only accept and respect the woman he so adored, clearly adored, to respect his choice, in other words, but um, to delve more deeply into her own personal history, perhaps to find out why, what was it about her? I mean, her life is rather complex, complicated, even convoluted territory. So I found it was most effective as a strategy to view it from a high altitude, kind of an aerial view, um, to see how all the separate fields, like little farm fields, connect with each other below. My editor uh, had a nice description, which I'm quite fond of. Um, it captured kind of the essence of it. He called it the life story of an artist who always remained defiantly herself. And the way she did that was refreshing to me because something else that Yoko herself said was rather striking when you, it sinks in. She said, you change the world by being yourself. At first, it seems quite simple, but most people, at least ones I've heard, tend to say, well, before changing the world or trying to change the world, just change yourself first. Mm -hmm. She didn't decide to do that. And in practical terms, the book kind of materialized a while ago, and a well-known art magazine asked me to um, review an important museum exhibition that was celebrating 40 years of her work, her social art activism. And I think she's undeservedly controversial. So I went in to look at the work. And it's important to note right off the bat, and this will startle people, I hope, that she didn't herself want to be the center of attention or a global celebrity or particularly famous. She's a shy, reserved, and introverted person. That may come as a shock to people, but seriously, she is one of the most introverted people I've ever encountered. And her work is a, an emblem of that kind of introversion. She would have preferred remaining quietly, invisibly even behind the scenes, just continuing to make her enigmatic art and write her poetry. And as a visual arts journalist and a pop culture critic, I was particularly interested in the intersection or maybe 
collision is a better word of her flexus oriented kind of neo data pop art personality and our mainstream popular culture entertainment industry. She did really create a unique hybrid of high and low culture in her experimental lifestyle before, during and after John Lennon. And perhaps more startling, today there seems to be a rehabilitation of her image and stature in the pop music world even, surprisingly, with multiple punk and new wave musicians, a third or a quarter of her age, she's now 89, remember, acclaiming her as an avatar. And the real crux of the book came when I recall complaining to a music journalist friend of mine, the late Kevin Courier, about all the press, or most of it, around that exhibition uh, that I was interviewing or reviewing. Even the media interviewing her personally, they were always situating her in the context, uh, understandably maybe, of the joint collaboration she undertook with John, all of which were fascinating public spectacles, rather than, however, her own context as a poet and conceptual artist in what's known as the fluxus mode. And not many people know about fluxus. That's another motive for writing the, the book. So um, one of the areas that I think your book is particularly strong, and it's something that really gets covered in other Beatles biographies, is Yoko's kind of childhood and her, and her early life. She, she arrives in all the other Beatles books kind of fully formed as this person that, that John meets. Um, t- tell us a little bit about Yoko's early part of her life. Did she come from a particularly privileged background? Uh, that's one thing that is um, known about her, although in a general sort of way, people often say, oh, she was wealthy. She really didn't make, need to work at making art, etc." She did indeed descend from a combination of, believe it or not, political royalty and huge wealth, financial empire wealth from a banking family. But she also experienced uh, violent exposures to war and bare survival while her father was away on banking business in America. And the main affect I can detect in her as a result is to attribute to her childhood what pretty obviously seems like today what we've come to understand as post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I think once you realize that, you can become a little more sympathetic to different defense mechanisms or behavior characteristics. But she was born uh, back in Tokyo in the morning on uh, February 18th, 1933, as she likes everyone to know, she was a Pisces. It was the year of the bird, and her name actually means ocean child, which strikes me as an interesting resonance because ocean child is one of the lines from John's song, Julia, about his mother. Later on, he actually, I think most people know, finally admitted that she largely wrote that song, Julia, about his mother. Uh, Yoko's early life was thus a kind of ironic combination of stressful deprivation in the midst of this wealth, though, because of the war that came about, but it was mixed chaotically with opulence and social privilege. Uh, Her father was literally absent for the first three years of her existence, never met him until much later. Her mother, Isoko, was responsible for keeping up the Yasuda image, the mansion, and their image in society. The mother and daughter, Yoko, eventually joined Yasuki in San Francisco, beginning her first exposure to the hybrid life. And she shuttled back and forth uh, quite early on before finally even settling there. And she had no real roots. So there's a sense in her artwork and in her as a person uh, that she was rootless, she felt, as a a person. Uh, The war, of course, started and disrupted their relationship even more, the mother and the father. The mother eventually went back to America, but was concerned that there was going to be the internment issue 
And they went back to Tokyo again and settled again, this time, though, in the country to get away from what happened in 1944, which was almost a quarter of Tokyo was incinerated in this notorious firebomb raid. And although they were affluent and privileged, the Ono family, though they were well protected in a kind of family bunker in a certain protected district, some distance, they were still fearful of their safety. So they embarked on another perilous move. Uh, she, she took her children, including Yoko and now a younger brother, to a farming village on the outskirts of uh, Karasawa, a mountain resort. And Yoko and her brother there helped actually to sustain the family by trading some of their luxury goods, which formerly were in their mansion, for food and uh, for survival. Um, she was 12 as the, the war preached its uh, climax, however, you know, an age when most girls are dealing with puberty, preparing for adulthood and so forth. Yoko was instead absorbing what then we were anticipating the most mind-altering violence ever perpetrated on an enemy culture, the nuclear attack on her homeland by another nation which she'd grown up in and which she thought was partially her, her home. So she graduated and went to uh, Yakunin University and very westernized in that course of study. Uh, Yoko embraced it and she was exposed to all kinds of Western philosophy and, and uh, music, um, poetry, all kinds of cultural elements, really knowing more by the time her family did move to America than the average American knows about their own history and culture. And it was in September 1952 that Yoko joined them in their new bungalow in uh, New York, just outside of New York in a suburb. And she enrolled in Sarah Lawrence College, which was a, a private liberal arts college a few miles, miles outside of town. Uh, after that, she never looked back and she just started experimenting with art almost immediately. She's 20 years old when she went there and she already started shocking her student classmates, her peers, with performances that she did, which were largely conceptual art, performance art pieces, before there even was a name for such a thing. But it was in her junior year in 1955 there that she met uh, Toshi Ishiganagi, who was a, a young Japanese avant-garde composer who was studying at Juilliard, was introduced, and she had an extremely rapid first of several passionate uh, affairs with him and got married, shocking her parents. One of the ironies I found was that she did exactly what her parents had been warned against and shocked her own grandparents, wanting to marry a, a composer, a musician, an artist instead of a banker. And it was a paradox, though, that later on as an adult, she would follow this same, you know, rebellious maternal pattern. But even more paradoxical, considering what an adventurous avant-garde artist musician was, weirdly, she would eventually become, as we know, the maven of a vast financial empire, which she literally quadrupled in value while managing, eventually, the musical business and estate of her third husband. Knowing that she even had two husbands first is, I think, one of the keys to the book. You start to talk a little bit about the, the art world there. What, what do you think drew her to become a, an artist and tell us a little bit about some of those those early works that, that she did. I think she ha had this hybrid character of bi-coastal international kind of status. She'd studied already in, in Tokyo at that college all sorts of experimental uh, forms of art. 
she was very taken with the Dadists and the Surrealists, and she liked them upending the customary definitions of what art was. And she, I think she just literally came uh, out of the womb being avant-garde. She was an experimental person right away. She was exposed to John Cage, an American avant-garde composer, most famous for his silent and accidental compositions. And through him and through Ishinagi, her first husband, who was a very avant-garde Japanese composer, uh, with Ishinagi in the late 50s, long before there was anything known as conceptual art, they launched together a series of loft exhibitions. They moved into this tiny, dank, cheap, $50 a month loft in New York in Greenwich Village. And she literally invented something now we take for granted, which is the artist-run center, like not a gallery, not a dealer, not a museum, but having an exhibition in the same place where you make the work in the studio. And it, of course, at first was just a small uh, number of artists, but they were all influenced by the early 20th century art of Marcel Duchamp. At this stage, uh, from 59 to maybe 62, uh, she's exploring her own unique brand of neo-data and neo-surrealism. And remember, this is the time, basically, the Beatles, John and, and Paul, are meeting each other as teenagers in 57. So she's, she being maybe eight years older than John, she's already had one marriage and she's doing this experimental art. So all of this, long before 1966, but it's the time where she first produced this little book that had a huge impact on me called Grapefruit. It was originally in maybe it was an artist book. It was called like a handmade, hand-stitched thing, limited edition, maybe 500 copies. And in it, she called it a book of instructions. They're really um, kind of mystical, poetic, charming, sometimes funny little poems, but they're descriptions of artworks that can be made. So it's all text. There's no visual art in it at all. Uh, it was stunningly beautiful, a little small book. It also contained the world's first encounter with one of her most, what, what I think is profound statements. And the quote is at the beginning of the book. She said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream, but a dream we all dream together is reality. It also contained multiple suggestions in the so-called instructions to imagine. Imagine this, imagine that, imagine there are 10,000 suns in the sky, imagine etc., which John, much later on, when he was more comfortable, finally admitted formed the basic core of his song, Imagine. And people who know this little book often say, well, you know, that, that's often a lot like Imagine, <laughs> the song. After this, this period, she then becomes associated with Anthony or, or Tony Cox, which is a, a name that's probably more familiar, certainly more familiar than Yoko's first husband, to kind of general... Beatle readers. Tell us a little bit about, about Tony, how, how he and Yoko kind of got together and what kind of relationship they had. Yeah, more, much more familiar in, in a sort of a notorious way. One of the things that uh, strikes me as paradoxical about Yoko's life, among many paradoxes, is the fact that in each case of her love affairs and her marriages, and there are three main ones, she was introduced and at first their liaison was supported by the previous partner. And some people may know this, but it's equally paradoxical, the fact that she met her Japanese husband, Ishiyanagi, first in America, and then she met her second American husband in Japan. So she met Anthony Cox in Tokyo in 1961 and 62. 
she had traveled back to Tokyo with her first husband for a series of events, installations, happenings, as they were called at that time,、uh, at the invitation of the composer John Cage. So, another consistent feature of her marriage was, was the fact that her relationships were always volatile and intense, rapid, supersonic, passionate, and very quick. And she's the first person I think that would admit she's not the easiest person to get along with.、Uh, she's nowhere near as bad as most people who dislike her, but she knows she has a variety of complexes. I think that's because of PTSD, but the, the book unveils that quite effectively, I think. But she and Toshi's marriage was already strained at the time.、Uh, so I guess it's what, maybe seven years they were together from 56 to 62. And things were already getting strained. There was some deprivation living in New York and、uh, difficult ways to support herself. She literally taught classes in origami at the Japan Society of all places. But he was desperate, Toshi, and at the end of his tether and quite concerned about her. And it was while undergoing this,、um, let's call it a rest cure, that she encountered、uh, Anthony Cox. Who's a multifaceted guy.、Uh, he's a jazz musician, a curator, an artist, a filmmaker, and a very inventive individual, let's put it that way. He had traveled there after seeing her work in some kind of an anthology, probably learned about the Loft series, which were quite legendary at that point. And he wanted to interview her about her avant garde work and possibly curate something with her, write an article about her. He literally had to meet her in this institution. The two developed a friendship, they bonded. And this was one supported by Toshi Ishiyanagi, who、uh, appreciated、uh, Cox's assistance and successfully, it seems, through his relationship, some sort of simpatico rapport they had, restoring、uh, his wife's emotional stability.、Uh, Cox, he was a very persuasive individual, managed to. Coordinate her release from the institution, and he joined in the gallery and concert tour that Yoko and Toshi were already on, even staying with them at one point. And Yoko and Cox became、uh, more and more intimate with each other very, very quickly. And the inevitable passion erupted, and they embarked on a stormy relationship, one that was almost automatically volatile and stormy. Maybe the fact they were both artists, who knows? But they were married in 1962. Really, really quickly after he got her out of this so called rest home. But one strange obstacle right away was that Yoko had been so enthusiastic about Cox that she married him before actually divorcing Ikshiyanagi. So that was annulled, that first marriage to Cox. And then she had to divorce Toshi and she married Cox again in 1963, two months before the daughter Kyoko was born, who has a whole dramatic history of her own. But The couple then wanted to return to New York. They were both、uh, fond and loved the, the vibe of New York and set up a house, continued work on art and film projects. And that's where he was really instrumental, hugely supportive in her work, helping her make the film Bottoms. And they were doing these, these things.、Um, and she, he was very effective at promoting her work, even though they were already experiencing difficulties caused by whatever reason. Now, they now had a daughter to support. He was looking after Kyoko all the time because she had to be off doing her thing. And he was willing to sort of be her promoter. In 1966, they traveled to、uh, a big international art conference in London, England. It was called Destruction in Art, having to do with art that was about you know, destroying either ideas or physical objects. 
But during this exhibition at the Indica Gallery uh, called Unfinished Pieces, that's where Yoko and Anthony met John when he visited the show in his famous encounter. So just as Ishiganagi had encouraged Yoko to defend Cox, Cox encouraged Yoko to develop a relationship at first, a professional one with Lennon, who would obviously have been, well, perceived as an invaluable patron, shall we say. That's what he was at that stage for their experimental projects and her art, her installations and so forth. And he was at first a professional patron. He sponsored a second solo show of Ono at the Listen Gallery, which was called Half a Wind. And that's a now a legendary exhibition in the conceptual art world because it was perplexing to people because the entire gallery had white painted furniture that had been cut in half. So half a chair, half a table, half a cup, a half a rug, half a painting, half everything. And it was puzzling to people. But really, if someone had said to her, well, what is this about? She would have actually said, well, I'm having difficulty in my relationship and I'm separating already from Anthony Cox. And so I only have half a relationship, half a life, half a home. Suddenly the thing becomes startlingly simple. She was feeling like half a person. She made cut everything in half. Well, the two, as we know, this is where everyone starts to be more familiar with the, the story, fell head over heels in love. Ono divorced her then husband, Anthony Cox, but not immediately. And eventually they had a, a, a serious custody battle. Later, Lennon was instrumental in getting another big museum show off the ground. It's true that her interaction with Lennon led to new possibilities. But the thing people have to remember, and I think most people who read some of the history know, the guy was nuts about her. There's no other way of describing it. And he was, she was completely in love with him. Once you figure that out, you realize that the, the mandate, the devotion behind the story the rest, as we say, is is, uh, is history. What do you think was the um, the attraction? E- even though it took them that kind of eighteen months until they kind of got together, from that point right. it was it, it it was as you say they were head of the hills. What do you think they got from each other? It's true. It would take yeah almost two years, maybe even three, really, until they cemented their you know got married after the divorce. But the key, I think, to the attraction. It's true that compared to her earlier love affairs and marriages, this one was uncharacteristically slow and sedate, shall we say, on, on the outside at least. They took time to, to develop. I mean, they immediately had a rapport from when he climbed that ladder and looked at the artwork. And he had, was coming down from a, an immense three-day-long trip at the time and encountered her. And I also have to point out that if you look at any portraits of her at that point, she was rather gorgeous. Their rapport which go, we go into some detail at when, when he met her in the gallery, asking her about this and that. And he had the audacity to pick up the apple that was on the pedestal and take a bite out of it. And there was something primal about their, their connection. There's no doubt about it, but it did unfold in slow motion. But the reasons I think are clear, they clicked, but they had both had very complicated marriages at the time. Each one had a child with their existing spouse. So that makes it quite different. So Cynthia Lennon and Anthony Cox both had to be factored into, in both cases, those spouses largely raised their kids so that the artist and the musician could continue uh, their creative life, you know, unencumbered. But it's fair to say that neither one of them would have been anyway the most ideal 
mother and father at that point to look after their respective kids uh, until they were given a second chance much later on um, with the son John and Yoko would have together, by which time they had obviously matured quite a lot and weathered quite a few interpersonal storms together and apart. But the main attraction, I think, was fascination of two artists, one for the other, and operating at some subterranean, almost unconscious level. Uh, but the big part for me, and most people know this, John's dissatisfaction with the life of a pop star. In his mind, well, here's a real artist. This person makes weird things that I understand. And she takes daring uh, experimental steps. So uh, he was always insecure in that regard anyway. Unlike, for instance, his brilliant but somewhat better, well-adjusted singer-songwriting partner, Paul, so technically, you know, it may have been three years for them to get together, John and Yoko, but in the middle of it all, Anthony Cox is raising Kyoko, Cynthia is becoming more and more aware of the slow distance developing in her marriage with John, especially when uh, John and Yoko are engaged in that all-night experimental recording session in their home together in Kenwood, while Cynthia was away on holiday in Greece. So, but it wouldn't be until... February 69, even that long, so several months still, um, that Yoko divorced Cox and careful to do so before marrying John. And they kept on producing more experimental records together, the wedding album known as Unfinished Music Number no. 2, Life with the Lions, in rapid succession, because they didn't, these things weren't made in any structured way. They literally just sat down and improvised spontaneously, which depending on who you ask is either a good or not a good idea. Why do you think John and Yoko had this idea in that first kind of two or even three years of their relationship where they would be together all the time? Why did they feel the need to be literally in each other's presence almost 24 hours a day? Well, I, I think I touched on it a bit. Um, I think it's largely him that needed her mm. 24 hours a day. I think we have to, we can't discount the serious disruption of his, his ego, his psychological stability uh, under the torrents of LSD and other things he was taking. Now, that, the partially that was an attempt to erase his ego. He, the, the other weird thing is they both had, I think, post-traumatic stress syndrome from their childhoods. The Yoko's less well-known, the bombing and, and moving around, having no roots, the Tokyo being obliterated, that kind of thing, and the, the two nuclear bombs but and deprivation. But his was growing up, you know, he born in 1940s, growing up in bombed out Britain, an upheaval in social, political, cultural times. And uh, I think he had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Weirdly, his main key partner meeting as a teenager, Paul, also, as everyone knows, had a, a mother who died young. They, had, they bonded over this, apart from being geniuses and loving uh, Chuck Berry and so forth, and having just some otherworldly gift that bonded them. But I think they bonded because they were, they were both sort of not orphaned exactly, but left with, with that pain. But I, I think in terms of John and Yoko, it resulted in, I would say, an obsessive compulsive relationship, which I have to say, I identify more on John's need for her. She wasn't looking for anything in particular. And I, I really suggest that she didn't want to be center stage he needed her there. And by 68, he needed her as a, well, I don't want to use the word crutch, but he, he felt he needed her to cement his new identity. He, I think, unintentionally really 
disrupted the band by forcing her into the studio with him all the time because there's nothing particularly healthy to being with your partner 24 hours a day and sitting her down in front of everybody else. She, however, acquiesced because her love for him and she felt that he needed this. It, I know it's very easy to misinterpret that, of course, but I, I think it's a, a combination of post-traumatic stress and obsessive compulsive disorder that, that he wanted to reject them, his group, his friends, his mates, but he, he didn't know how to do that. And he said, well, to himself, here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm starting to make music independently. And the next thing you know, they, they are making music independently, literally all of them with solo albums in, in one year, practically. Mm. There's a psychological component that I can't analyze, but I can certainly observe it and think she didn't force her way in anywhere because I think here's the key. If people realize how shy, retiring, quiet, and introverted she is, I know this is hard to imagine when you listen to her music. Here's the other thing. If you know that she's a serious introvert, and I mean serious, an absolutely classical introvert that doesn't want to talk, say anything, be seen, have a public, even have a body, she her disruption of her psychology was so profound that she, and which she had this tiny presence that she wanted to be invisible. Such a person doesn't want to go in and become world famous as a disruptor. So after the uh, the time that John Yoko spend in, in London around Get Back, and then they go to the palatial surroundings of Tittenhurst Park in Ascot, uh, and then the move to New York in September of, of 1971, uh, which you say in the book that the New York move was essentially Yoko's kind of idea. Why do you think she and they were keen to to move to New York? Well, I, yeah, I should stipulate that it's definitely both of them being keen. Uh, many people think she somehow coerced him somehow or influenced him because people think she did that in general, influenced him, coerced him this way and that way, but not really. You don't, you don't really coerce somebody with a personality as huge as John Lennon. He, he doesn't stop moving his mouth. You know, you don't just tell him, oh, this is what we're going to do. But he had suggested uh, that it's true. John was always the one who personally believed that he should have been born in New York. He's been quoted as saying this many times. He used to say, in fact, that if he had lived in ancient Rome, he would have lived in, in the ancient world's capital, which was Rome. In the modern world, the new Rome was New York. So he said, Often, secretly, not so secretly, he believed that he should have been, first of all, an artist like her, that he really was a, a beat and experimental artist, and that New York should have been where he was born. So he obviously had this strong compulsion to be a serious, serious artist, and he, he felt more so than Yoko felt she could become famous as an artist through him. He felt he could become a serious artist through her, through her connections, which were quite profound. Uh, she did say, though, two things that, People left you alone in New York. Famous people could walk around in New York. They weren't as enamored of even famous people, big celebrities. So she missed the community of uh, vibe of the art world. And she missed the like-minded aesthetic experimenters like herself. And then if you add on to that, the fact that she encouraged him to the degree that, well, you know, in my art world, nobody looks twice at you. You just go down the street and et cetera, et cetera. So he wanted to free himself from that pressure. But think about this. She wanted to just escape from the pressure of being so reviled herself, unfairly in my opinion, by the media and press in England. Imagine the claustrophobia of this quiet little victim 
regardless of how disturbing her uh, art and music frequently was. But remember, if you remember she's an introvert, you also remember why she screams. It suddenly makes sense. What I consider clearly misogynistic and racist bile constantly being flung at her and the perpetual attention heaped onto this person, it was a mutual desire to go. Uh, and especially after the intense publicity, the success, but also the publicity around his second solo album, Imagine, <clears throat> and the making of that documentary film on the making of the record, they went there to promote that album, but also the film. She also indicated that you'd be left alone in New York. You, you wouldn't be a Beatle. You'd just be an artist. And we can, and John also thought and desired to make visual art projects with her. He, he wanted to be less a musician, uh, which he was finding difficult to be anyway, because I think he thought at that point his muse had dried up. I think post-imagined, there is some, some potential truth to that. But again, it's just his shaky insecurity. But it would allow him to start his own career as a more serious artist. And so then, you know, 71, 72, they set up residence there. But there are obstacles there because of the immigration department due to his past drug busts. And, but his views definitely seemed to be flickering a bit. And he was really enjoying working with Yoko on her art projects. And he was also starting to make visual art himself. But his next solo record in New York was not received well. Um, it's been more or less critically panned and it was publicly ignored sales-wise sometime in New York City. And they embarked on this short-lived but very intense kind of love affair with the, the far-left radical political figures like Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and even Timothy Leary trying to run for, for mayor or governor, whatever the hell it was. It was quite a blow to his, this popular musician, the most popular artist musically on earth at the time, for somewhere in New York City to be panned. But then came his personal difficulties and the inevitable marital discord, which prompted their distance, shall we say. What do you feel were the reasons for that split? That Was that Yoko? I mean, again, some of the things that, that we know and that we've read before, some of his behaviour became unacceptable and then she set up this relationship with May Pang. What do you feel were, were the reasons for that? temporary split that they had yeah i think um a very difficult and personally painful time for both of them for sure but especially for yoko who had felt betrayed by lenin publicly in a variety of drunken parties particularly one notorious one at jerry rubin's place they were supposed to be celebrating mcgovern's win over nixon except nixon won and the the dream became tarnished Lenin, by that stage, was riddled with self-doubt, overcome by his extreme negative reactions to alcohol and other stimulants. Um, some people really shouldn't get too heavily into alcohol because it unleashes the demons they have in a, in a bad sort of way. And he was one of those because he managed somehow successfully to be, a, on the surface, very peaceful person. But he, inside, most people who have read material on the Beatles know that he also was a very angry and occasionally violent person, but he submerged that. But when uh, he got, for lack of another word, plastered, he behaved himself very, very badly. And I think she wanted to save his life in a way. So she did coordinate this relationship, this liaison with their production assistant, May Pang, but they were already seeing each other intimately anyway. It's not like she 
solicited her. She was already helping with their films, with the whatever. She was a <clears throat> studio assistant, young, attractive, smart, capable, had already been looking after him in the sense of being a, a handler to some degree. He basically had to get away from her. He knew he had to. I think he thought in a weird sort of way that he was reinitiating a sort of semi-bachelorhood, which starts to explain the just downright dark 18-month-long uh, Los Angeles uh, sojourn that he sardonically called Lost Weekend, after which, in my opinion, some part of Lennon, uh, and it's borne out by some of his later interviews, um, knew that if he continued in the never-ending merry-go-round of drinking drug abuse extolled by chums like Keith Moon and Harry Nilsson, he would be doomed. So even with the support of it and the companionship of May Pang out there, he somehow knew he was on the road to perdition, I guess you'd call it. And if he hadn't returned to New York with May Pang, apparently assuming that they would continue their relationship, which I think he sort of led her to believe. So he, as usual, he was a very conflicted person. This isn't a negative critique of him. He was simply conflicted, as was Yoko in her life, which also explains in retrospect why they were so bonded. But she thought they were going to live together, purchase a house. They were looking at properties. Other than that, if he hadn't come back from, he would have gone the same route, I'm pretty sure, as Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, and so many others. Um, inside him, perhaps, he realized he also didn't want to throw away the love call it either all-consuming or obsessive, whatever you want to call it, depending on your angle, he had experience with Yoko, which was undeniably profound. So my take on her is that no matter what her behavior elicited, he loved her so much that I am encouraged to accept her exactly as she is. But meanwhile, Yoko was starting to, in that interval, most people aren't aware so much. They know the last weekend of John and all of that they're not so much aware in that 18-month period about what Yoko was doing, because that's the trouble, of course. People paid more attention to her when she was with him. Mm. They didn't know about her before she was with him. And then when she wasn't with him, well, no one really looked at her at all. But this was luckily a very therapeutic period for her because she made some of her most interesting music uh, during that period. Although I'm a huge fan of her first Plastic Ono band in 1970, and especially Fly, the double album follow-up in, in 71, which I think is a masterpiece. But subsequent to that, she really did invent a kind of hybrid of avant-garde jazz and essentially punk eight years before it existed in that period when he was away. And it was the solo period of reflection she made in 1973, Approximately Infinite Universe, which is just an amazing record with a remarkable song called Death of Samantha on it. That song in particular was her immediately immediate creative response to Lennon's infidelities, difficulties. But her subsequent album, Feeling the Space, which is literally about the space between them when he was away, um, and her solitude, it is also quite remarkable in 74. And another album, which very few people paid much attention to, but I think it's one of her most amazing records. It's called A Story, and it was made during this time in 1974, but it wasn't released for maybe over 20 years till I think it was 1997 due to the sensitive content of it. And it was made seemingly unnecessary by Lennon's return to the fold, to the Dakota. So 
but once that did come out in 97, if people go back and listen to that and realize the context of her making it in 74 while he was off, you know, remarkable stuff that's on there, especially a song called Coffin Car, which is hauntingly prescient. So, as you say, they, they reunite despite the issues that, that John was suffering. And then the, the great joy of his longed-for child, Sean, arrives. And then they, they settle into this apparent domestic bliss at the Dakota. Uh, John retires from the music business and focuses on, on Sean and, and, and Yoko and, and himself, I suppose, as much as, as anything else. There are some conflicting views on this time. Poor Yoko has to deal with all the, especially in, in, the, in the 80s, put up with all these different books that come out by people like John Green and, and Fred Seaman and mm. May Pang herself that apparently shine a much more negative light onto that, that period. It's all well and good, these books coming out, but she at that point was raising a, a, a young boy still on her own and suddenly all over the magazines and papers would be these apparent exposés. Where do you sit on that 75 to 80 period? Do you think that they, when they come back for Double Fantasy, that they slightly oversell that domesticity? Or, or do you think that in the main it was a, a pretty contented time for them both? Ironically, I think it was it was both. Sometimes we forget that in life, our own life, sometimes two contradictory elements or narratives can be happening, and both of them are true. I, I think it was a contented time because they had transcended some of the passionate upheavals of their youth, you could say. Although they still had, as I understand it, a fairly open marriage, or what's popularly referred to as open marriage, they were both free spirits, let's put it that way, and artists and so forth. But there wasn't any more descent into uh, depravity. I believe they wanted it to be domestic bliss. He came back with the whole point of, I'm appreciative of you helping me survive and taking me back. I think that's, that's fair enough. And I think the, you know, the birth of Sean in quick order created something quite magical in, in both of their lives. And remember, she, by that point, is in the 40, late 40s or something. She'd already had, in her early youth, abortions. She'd had several miscarriages with kids, with John, attempts to do this. And um, John had difficulty with his first son, in other words, almost abandoning him, to the point where he felt, well, this son is one that I want, or this child is one that we both want. And I can't help believing that even without recourse to any of the spurious, potentially odd material that's too private to be authentic in a way, he did become at that point not only retired from music, but he became a classic recluse, period. I think he even referred to this as his Howard Hughes period. And it was a serious withdrawal from public activity. Now, to, to the nourishing part of that was, I have this wonderful son that he intended to have. He wanted to become what he always claimed to be, which was a feminist. And I think he did become a feminist. Um, much of his political efforts in the 70s were uh, focused on supporting her feminism and anti-war activity and then radical left-wing politics, none of which he didn't fare very well in any of those because he made bad choices in terms of who he affiliated himself with. But this was a genuine feminist act. I can, I can do this. And the other feminist part of it was, well, he also may have thought, his day in the sun had passed him by musically. And there's no doubt that no music is made. You know, after the few albums subsequent to Sometime in New York City, 
the rock and roll one, you know, which was kind of a vanity project, quite beautifully done. Mm. You know, he didn't, he didn't strike the same chord. She mostly retired from it again as well until 85. After that, she really retired of it uh, in a, a long way because of the response to her, her 1985 outing. But mostly she was busy with business. And this is the most ironic, paradoxical part. Uh, she's managing the memory the memorial, the legend of John Lennon, their estate, of course, as well, under her guidance becomes way more immense than it was because he didn't know, as no one surprised anybody, what the hell to do with all the money he made. And then she was waiting for her own rejuvenation in the art world, which was coming around to her slowly but surely. So one of the things that you, that you say in the book is that, yeah, after John's killed, she has this kind of dual role as artist and as custodian. Do you think she found it hard to balance this idea of being a widow, almost a professional widow in, in a sense, um, and she's got this, this huge artistic fire in her that she's had, as we've discussed, for most of her life? It, I think it's, it must have been difficult for her through the 80s and into the 90s to kind of balance those two things. Oh, yeah, very, very difficult. And, and you're right that she is professional widow in the sense that she becomes as famous as Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, essentially. Or, or But and I think the, the urge to make art, which she had left to some degree behind, you know, after 85, she really does retire from music for, for 10 years until 1995. She, the response to that particular album, where she was trying to keep up with the changes in the 80s and didn't quite succeed, so she, yes, was balancing these two things. must have been incredibly difficult because it wasn't just as easy as one might imagine. Well, now I'm going back into the art world because she did have these conflicting um, responsibilities, uh, not the burden so much, but the uh, responsibility of raising the son as a widow, Sean and so forth. But I think she acquitted herself uh, more than admirably, even if she does shock people by releasing, you know, Season of Glass in, immediately in 81, so close after his demise, the, the one with the buddy sunglasses on the cover, that was the most gutsy uh, gesture I can imagine, because she's saying, well, you know, this happened to me. Mm. It happened to him. Why should I let anybody forget it? Her earlier releases were contemporaneous with groundbreaking punk regenerators, uh, like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. I mean, the earliest ones from early 70. And she often explored a very discordant terrain. She sort of continued trying to be a pop artist at, a time, at the time, not a pop visual artist, but a musician. She now has received the accolades of a lot of young musicians. Influence has been cited by the likes of Bikini Kill, Deerhoff, especially Sonic Youth, which, whom she actually made an album uh, with Thurston and Moore when they reunited after a long separation. But she then went on from the point of managing the estate and she started attending board meetings and financial uh, stockholders and investment things and, you know, buying properties and buying artwork that was incredibly expensive as investment. So she started doing all of that, running the estate and licensing things, of course, you know, to a large degree, which is the management of the land and estate, which I think had to have quadrupled, I understand. But she also con concentrated on the, the more personal, elegiac things like establishing the Imagine Festivals, the Imagine Foundation, 
with those commemorative awards and a number of philanthropic activities. And in the 90s, then, a younger generation of musicians seemed to discover her old music again and to acclaim her as the inspiration for their own style. And in recent years, she's been celebrated as by a younger generation of artists that recognize her experimentalism, feminist, anti-war activism, all of it, the pioneering eclecticism itself as influential. You see, she was doing multiple eclectic activities, a multimedia kind of approach, much sooner than the average artist was. Now it's quite commonplace. And whether she made a direct impact or simply shares common aesthetics, Ono's work is really of a, a piece with a diverse range of adventurous artists, especially Diamanda Galas, the Slits, Polystyrene, you know, and X-Ray, those kinds of people are all saying, well, you know, she's why I can do what I, what I do. Absolutely. It's of uh, the legacies is clear. Uh, so just to conclude, we're obviously now, as you said at the start, talking about uh, an 89-year-old woman. Did your kind of view of her and your perception of her, did it change whilst you were writing the book? Well, I, I think um, to some degree, the animosity towards her has softened among, let's say, more aware people or kind-hearted people or tolerant people. I'm often frequently surprised still by the negative comments, and I wouldn't even call it criticism. It's more hate-inspired things that come about on Facebook or in certain groups, but that probably happens to any celebrity. But many people have changed their attitudes towards her. Many have not. But I'm, my perspective is I, I keep asking, I mean, come on now, it's over a half a century later. I say it's high time to let go. And the only ones who continue seemingly to hate her are the very ones who seem to know the least about her as a person, as an artist, as a feminist, as a peace activist, the least. It's simply focused on, well, the Beatles broke up. Well, yeah, but do you know why? Or do you know anything about her? Well, no. So my message is she's the real deal. She's always exactly what she has seemed to be. Huge museum shows now situate her where she belongs in the history of contemporary art. She was also the sheer personification, and this is what it comes down to for me in the end, the embodiment of a profound sentiment that was once expressed, elucidated by the novelist, American novelist John Updike, and that is that celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. And I think that is one of the ironic lessons that Yoko learned by following love with a, in love with a pop star. She didn't break up his pop group. He quite nearly also derailed her career, though, as an artist going along the way. Almost, but not quite. Well, thankfully, he didn't. What a great way to end, Donald. Thanks, thanks so much for your time. Uh, the, the book is Yoko Ono, An Artful Life. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Enjoyed it.